as a startup founder, you'll tend to lean on mentors, coaches, and consultants for business advice. But what's the difference? Is one more important than the other? Should I be paying for one or all these different people to help me in my business? And how can any or all of these people help me to avoid marketing tactics instead of focusing on the marketing strategy that's the holistic approach to my business? My name is Jared Doyle, and this is The Fractal Podcast, where I interview marketing experts from around the world to help startup founders like you drive their business forward. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode. This week, I'm joined by Robin Waite from the UK, who's a business coach, speaker, and also the author of Take Your Shot and Coaching Businesses to Double Their Turnover and Their Profit. Robin, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, It's an absolute pleasure. Can't wait to get started. Well, first things first, you're a business coach, and I sometimes consider myself a business consultant. And I know most of the people listening to this are startup founders who really rely on their mentors. So I'm really keen to understand your ideas about the difference between a business coach, a business consultant, and how a mentor fits into that in the whole startup mix. Yeah, absolutely. So um, prior to setting up my coaching practice in 2016, I was a consultant. So uh, I'm probably the best person to kind of answer this question. So I ran a, um, similar to you, I actually ran a, a marketing business for best part of 12 years. So the most clear distinction I can put between the two is that coaching is, um, so you have a DIY product, which is would might be like an e-learning course or something like that. So that's something you pay for, you consume and you implement everything yourself. Coaching fits into the done with you sort of product, whereby a coach sits alongside you to give you sort of helpful tips, advice and things like that. But then as the, as the startup founder, the business owner, you're the one who's then responsible for implementing it. And then a consultant sits is like the third tier of that. And I classify that as done for you. So it's where somebody basically is um, buying hours or days of your time to implement the, the technical things that you can't necessarily do for yourself. You can kind of then factor in mentors into the mix as well. Mentors, um, again, you can get free or paid mentors, but um, I believe a mentor should be somebody who's worked in a similar industry or line of work to you, but there may be 10 or 20 years ahead of you, you know, where you are at the moment. So they're typically an an older version of you or a a version of you that you want to get to in 10 or 20 years time. I think um, one of the great things about mentors is they're also often there to be a bit of a moral fallback, a bit of an emotional support. Whereas a consultant or a business coach is often much more brash. They kind of tell you how it is. Whereas a mentor sometimes is there to catch you when things aren't going so well. Yeah. And it's, um, I, I kind of liken it a bit to, you know, the difference between having maybe a mindset coach as a, as a boxer and your, your physical training coach. So when you get into the ring, you want your physical training coach as a boxer to punch you on the nose and get you prepped and ready for those battles. Whereas, <laughs> um, you know, a, a mentor is somebody who's going to sit there and say, Hey, well, you know, in order to get through this, it's not just this fight, but actually you're going to have three more fights to do to get all of the you know, the, all of the different belts which you want to get to. So they, they kind of talk much more from experience, whereas, you know, a coach is going to get in the ring and take a few blows for you. I guess the last thing for me is often, and sometimes I use this phrase for myself as an agency, but I've often think of agencies as being where you literally pick up an entire function of a business and outsource and say, here, agency, do this for me. I don't need to do it. Whereas coaches and consultants tend to help you out in the core facets of your business, of which I would like to consider marketing as a core facet of any business. But of course, you know, there's, there's going to be other things. But if it's something like, say, bookkeeping, that's where I'm likely doing 
you know, employ an agency can just completely pick up my bookkeeping and throw it away. Because whilst it's fundamental to a business's success or operations, I don't think it's fundamental to its actual growth. It's, it's more of a function of just doing business. Definitely. And I think also like an agency, you might have complementary services within that, you know, it's like a group of consultants who specialize in slightly different things. So you get a much broader kind of depth of, of help and advice available to you. So I'm thinking about people listening to the podcast and, and this is something that I always, I guess it's the way I imagine founders think about their business and I'm often dealing with them and they've got this fundamental problem, which is they can see the brilliance of their own idea. But they're often sitting back and thinking, why is nobody buying it? Nobody can see why my idea is so good. Why aren't they moving forward? You know, that, that sheer frustration when you can see the future as a founder, and yet it appears that nobody around you can see what you can see. I'm keen to tap into your experience and the way you've been guiding business owners and founders in how to find out how to, I guess, work out why people aren't buying your product when you're a, a founder of a startup, when you're probably created a product that is better than something else that's on the market uh yeah i mean i've i think i think you mentioned in um in the, in the notes before the interview something I've, I've created this thing it's called the magical mystery machine so magical marketing mystery machine and like fundamentally the landscape of running a business has changed dramatically so um essentially what's happened is now i've got uk stats to base this on um but I, i've looked at other marketplaces sort of australia new zealand um america canada and the stats are loosely similar. So if you were to rewind the clock 25, 30 years ago to the dawn of the internet age, there was, in the UK, there was um, just over half a million registered businesses. So you fast forward back to today, there's 10 times the number of businesses, there's close to 6 million registered businesses in the UK. And that, that trend is kind of replicated in other places. And essentially what that means is that, yes, the internet has created this global marketplace. It's, you can get a website done, you can get it, you can sell your products online to anyone in the world. But there's 10 times the number of businesses doing exactly whatever it is that you and your, you know, the start your listeners are actually doing. So there's 10 times the number of coaches, there's 10 times or probably more than that number of web designers, 10 times the number of engineers and CAD designers and freelancers and things like that out there. So it, what it actually means is there's a ton of opportunity. It's really easy to start a business, but it's actually 10 times harder to get found. So I know that obviously as a motivational speech for your listeners, that's not particularly great. But the reality <laughs> is, like, once you, when you know that simple fact that actually it's harder to get found, well, all of a sudden it becomes easier because it's just a mindset thing because we're all scratching our heads going, gosh, this would be really easy. But the moment somebody tells you it's hard, you know that you've got to put the yards in. You know that you've got to focus a bit harder on what are the small dominoes you need to knock down in order to knock over the big dominoes, i.e., you know, attracting and finding and meeting new prospects and turning them into clients. And I've seen so many people who get bogged down in the, oh, I've got to create a funnel. I've got to get my website set up. I've got to, you know, I've got to do some SEO. Like they get so bogged down in all the day to day tactical stuff that, you know, back when I was building websites, you know, it was novel to have a website. You know, back in 2004, when I started that agency up, it, you, you were unusual, you were unique if you had a website. And most of the traffic would go from Google directly to your website. So if you had a website, you would be found first. But the reality is now when you're looking at things like the introduction of um, Google My Business and you know various other sort of search platforms that are available, um, actually 80% of the traffic now goes through Google My Business before it goes anywhere else, any other platform, not just your website. So everything's like really diluted down. And so, you know, I see so many business owners who are like, oh, I've spent all this money and time on my website, yet I, I still can't sell my stuff. Well, it's, 
actually, you've got to be omni-channel. You've got to put effort into a lot of different platforms. Yeah. And I, I wonder whether or not just that massive selection of businesses out there creates just straight up confusion in the minds of a potential buyer where they sit there and saying, wow, there's all these, you know, using example like CAD designers, here's 50 I can choose from. I can't really tell the difference between each of their offerings. And it gets a little bit hard. And it's almost like the biggest battle you've got is against the status quo. It's almost like the, the easiest decision to make as a buyer is just to go, do you know what, it just looks too hard. And so I guess the struggle is to actually stand out in a marketplace. So that idea of a completely crowded marketplace, I guess the two things that strike me is, you know, one, this just the sheer confusion of choice is, you know, multiple choice creates. And the second thing is probably around that idea of, I might just stay with what I've got because everything else new just looks too hard to figure out. Is that something you've, you've experienced as well? Yeah, absolutely. And and you also look at when you start to drill down into the messaging that most people are putting out there. So this is this is where the magical marketing mystery machine comes into its own. So you imagine you've got this sausage machine, right, where you're dropping Instagram and Facebook and your website and MailChimp and everything else into the top of it and all these different platforms that the experts, the gurus tell us to use. And kind of it gets, it gets pushed through this, this sausage machine and it just sprays marketing shit all over the wall, basically. And what that looks like, what it sounds like is, hey, look at me, I'm amazing, come and buy my stuff. And actually, that doesn't add any value to, to anybody. So that CAD designer, if you've got 49 CAD designers who are all saying, hey, look at me, I'm an amazing CAD designer, come and buy my stuff, there's nothing differentiating them. Whereas if you've got one guy who's saying, well, look, part of my process is that we, you know, I offer a, a free 60 minute, you know, strategy call. I've got this great 10 page, 10 steps to creating the perfect CAD design document. Uh, and it's got, he's got, this person's created sort of various different marketing assets, but rather than, you know, hey, buy my stuff, they're actually saying, hey, here's a load of value, go and dive in and then I'll help you to make an educated decision. Out of those 50 CAD designers, which one do you think they're going to choose? Which one do you think is more attractive? You're talking there about really getting into that pay it forward content funnel strategy where I know you said before, you know, oh, I've got to build a funnel, but it's this idea of paying it forward and, and and sharing the advice and almost your best advice you can out there first, which is going to attract people because that's your natural inclination is if someone's giving you value, you start to think, well, they may be, they're the right person to get to. And, and I know for myself, I was recently looking for a photographer to take new headshots because I've got this thing where I always say, you've got to get a new headshot every couple of years so you look like the photo. There's no point in Jared turning up with a full head of hair looking like he's 30 when actually it's receding and I'm 40. And so I did that terrible thing. You've got to go, okay, I've got to get a photo taken. And I thought, well, who am I going to get? And I found this one guy's YouTube video is local to me. And he had this fantastic video where he was pulling his chin and out and giving himself a double chin and showing you how to like lean forward and, and you know, just look a little bit more professional. And I just he made me laugh. I just looked and thought, wow, if he if he's willing to put himself, you know, embarrass himself like that, look bad in photos and video and put himself out there, he's probably the guy I need. And then I just went, I didn't even care about, I mean, I did care about the price, but his price was about right. I wasn't going to check anybody else. I just rang up, booked it in, went down, got my photo taken and left. And, you know, and I, the thing for me was I wanted to feel comfortable, but because he'd put the effort in to create some content, which tapped into my greatest fear, which was the idea of, you know, I guess just looking a bit awful in a photo, he managed to get over that with paying it forward. So look, I, I totally agree with that strategy. I think it makes a lot of sense. Well, A, a you've reminded me that I probably need to go and uh, get my headshots redone, but also B, what he did there was just reduce the friction. He made the process fun, engaging, easy, because he was just around the corner and he'd already taken the time to do something that would build up the trust, you know, and he removed any effort that you had to make in order to, to start that relationship off. And, uh, you know, I, I think from a, 
you know, the, the more value you can deliver up front, just the and reduce that friction, the more you can educate people. It's just it just makes life so much easier for everybody. It's sounding to me like your advice is very much focusing on the strategy, the marketing strategy for your business over and above the tactics. And I say that, um, I think it was two episodes ago, I had Amir from Apricot Videos, a fellow Brit on the um, show, and he was really emphasizing it's not tactic, it's not tactics. You know, if you've got a single tactic that's working, you know, that's going to be short term, it's not going to last. And it sounds to me like you're echoing the same kind of thoughts, which are focus on the marketing strategy for your business as opposed to the tactics. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's it's um so one of the things I talk a lot about is is around sort of goal setting, and as a small business, this is absolutely vital. So um, there's actually three elements which go into it. So you, you kind of when you get into the realms of like goal setting, that's that's the strategic element. It's that high level, you know, helicopter view of your business. So it might be that you want to maybe generate, I don't know, get two new clients a month for your business. Then what you can do is once you've got that goal in mind, you know that probably you've got to add some value somewhere in, in that, that transaction. So maybe you need a consultation process. So for every 10 consultations you sit, you get those two clients. But then beyond that, you've then got the maybe all of the different conversations that your different sort of marketing channels get. So your website, Facebook, social media, et cetera, et cetera, your MailChimp, your email marketing campaign, those all start conversations. And it's that um, sort of trickle down effect. You've got to fill up the bucket with all of those leads and inquiries, the noise. That's the tactical bit. Those are all the, how can we start those conversations? But fundamentally, you can't design tactics if you don't know what the end result is, the end goal. I'm just going to rewind a little bit. So going back to those two, you know, the goal of getting, say, two sales per month, two new clients a month. I'm sure your listeners cover a broad brush, different sort of, you know, range of businesses. But let's say, for example, they're a coach or a consultant or a, a marketing agency or something like that. And they just need two clients a month in order to achieve their financial goals. Now, it's called a lag indicator because if you get to the end of the month and you've only got one new client, there's nothing you can do to influence that up or down. You're not going to achieve your goal. However, if you get halfway through the month and you realize that actually I haven't started enough con- conversations and I've only had three consultations, you know that your lead indicators are starting, your tactical indicators are starting to lag behind. Uh, so you've got two choices at that point. You can either say, oh, well, uh, I'm just going to, uh, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm probably only going to get one client this month. I'll just uh, be happy with that and content with that. Or you can switch the hustle mode, hustle button, <laughs> hustle mode on and say, right, what have I got to do then in order to increase those number of conversations? How can I get more meetings? How can I increase my chances of achieving my goal of getting two new clients a month? And, you know, don't underestimate the power of like goal setting. I I did a, um, uh, I have an assessment process for any new clients I take on. And believe it or not, 76% of people said that they either didn't have a business plan, or they had a substandard business plan that they never referred to. So you've got all these people running around with no idea about why they're in business in the first place, which is just utterly ridiculous. It's, it's like jumping into your car, deciding I'm going to travel 500 miles and not bothering to use the sat nav. Like you're going to get lost. You're going to find that journey hard. I must admit, I know, I know I fall into that trap as well uh, in terms of the overall business plan, but I, I think I do at least set short-term goals and things that I believe are going to feed in. So, you know, it's that thing of saying, every week, another podcast episode, every week, another article on LinkedIn, whatever it happens to be, because I know that if I do enough of that, it will lead to those meaningful conversations, build the client base. So yeah, really, really good advice. And, and just touching on something you said there about starting those conversations, you know, that to me sort of starts that idea around referral marketing and the idea that, you know, good content, good conversations, good, you know, marketing strategy leads to conversations, which leads to referral marketing. 
How do you know when that's working? What do you use as a guide to sort of say that referral marketing is working for you? And do you have any tips on how to actually measure that kind of thing? Because it's not usually that quantifiable. Um, yeah. So one way to break it down very easily for for your listeners is um, Google Zero Moments of Truth. So it's a white paper which Google did. It's called Zero Moments of Truth. And they talk about the amount of engagement that it takes in order to get um, a new, they call it a high ticket client. But you know, um, if, you, if you're in the coaching consulting sort of world, to get a new client on board, and they say you need 70 conversations in order to create 10 consultations to get two clients. So that's where those numbers came from that I quoted. So, so long as you're, so long as you have like a diary, which has two or three slots a week for those consultations, and they're filling themselves up with minimal effort, you kind of know that the referral marketing is actually working. If you go from week to week, and those consultation slots are empty, you know that you've kind of got to get a bit deep and dirty with the tactical stuff in order to start to fill up those slots and kind of force the equation. One thing that's really, I find really fascinating, though, is people's kind of reticence to, um, to lean in. And again, I think it comes back to this mindset that because the internet is there and it's easy, that there's this perception that, oh, we've got a website, therefore people should just book onto consultations with us. And therefore they don't actually like proactively go out there hunting for clients. So an example of this is like, the, well, I've seen plenty of people post really great content on Facebook, for example, on their page or in a group, get a ton of likes, comments and shares. And then they go around shouting about how many likes, comments and shares they've got, but then moan about the fact that they haven't booked any consultations and don't have any clients. And you're like, you know, if you've got likes, comments and shares, it's kind of vanity metrics until you actually, and there's nothing wrong. If somebody likes your post, you know, add them as a friend, potentially message them and say, Hey, what was it about that post you liked? Is there anything else I can help you with? Oh, by the way, if you liked that post, I've got this video on YouTube, you might want to check out, or I've got this PDF, you might want to go and download. So again, it's about, you know, rather than waiting passively for people to come and consume your content, this is about almost rather than doing like a one-to-many marketing campaign, we have a, a, this notion of like one-to-one marketing. So you're, you're like getting to know people on a one-to-one basis and tailoring your marketing, your message, like literally direct messaging them with something which is appropriate for them at the right time. And what I found through doing that is it just, um, next thing you know, they're sharing your stuff. They booked onto a consultation. They're raving about, about what you do because it looks like you've almost given them a concierge sort of service. But a lot of people just get bogged down like immediately like, oh, I couldn't possibly private message somebody. How rude. What might they think of me? And it's like, do you know what? You've got to get used to rejection in business in this day and age and force it. Like whether, whether it's a client, a prospect saying no to you, like bugger off, stop messaging me, you know, and, and that's rare. That's like one in a thousand idiots. I was going to use a more rude word there, but one in a thousand idiots just won't get it. And they're like, you know, uh, stop messaging me. Cool. That's okay. We've just, we've just worked out there laws of natural selection that we don't like each other. We're not a good fit for one another, but most people are quite open to it or quite often people will just say, ignore it. Well, particularly because they've just liked your content. I think that's the big thing for me is you've posted something they've liked or made a comment on some content that you've shared and that content's probably you paying it forward and putting your best foot forward. So that act of liking is, okay, it's not an an absolute invitation to get pitched to, but it is an invitation to have a follow-up, which is just a connection request. And if they accept that, then you know the next step. It horrifies me to think of how many things I might have posted on social media people who I don't really know liked or commented and that I failed to follow up. So, and I'm not saying because if I haven't done it, no one's done it, but I just think to myself, there must be so many people listening to this that put all the effort into creating content, get their likes, get their comments, the vanity metrics, as you put it, 
and then fail to actually execute on that and take advantage of those intros that they could, you know, they rightly have a reason to reach out and contact those people. I think that's really solid takeaway advice for anyone listening to this. Well, that's it. And and also uh, the, the same people who don't take action are the same ones who are bitching and moaning about the fact that their business isn't growing, you know, and th- yes, there's, there's lots of different ways to kind of grow a business. So it's not just about kind of um, doing more marketing, you know, that's, I, I kind of, um, you know, mo- you see a lot of business owners out there. And ag- again, I'm not knocking marketing at all, but there are two other ways to grow a business. So one one way would be to reduce your costs. Now, accountants love that. But for me, I don't think it really produces like long-term sustainable growth in a business. But also, you know, when you, you look at most business owners who are busy, like banging the drum, the marketing drum all of the time, and all you see them doing is getting frantic, frustrated because they're doing, it's this sales cycle of doom, sell, deliver, sell, deliver, sell, deliver. And they get burnt out because it's just this constant ongoing cycle, sell, deliver, sell, deliver not quite making enough money, but it's just enough to survive. But yet I'm working all the time and I'm a bit worn out. You know, the third way to grow a business is simply look at your your product, your offer and your pricing. Most business owners I see are, are vastly underselling themselves because they see that the only way to get clients is to compete against other business owners. So we go back to our CAD designer, let's call him Charlie. So Charlie, Charlie, the CAD designer, you know, he's the one in one in 50 who gets found but imagine, imagine now he's getting found, but he's actually charging double the rates of everybody else as well. So he's better at marketing, better at getting found, get, better at getting at selling, but he's also making double the revenue. All of a sudden, he can kind of relax a bit because he doesn't need as many clients. So he's not as needy. So I, I, would, I would also urge like any, anyone listening to kind of just go through a bit of a detox in their business and look at, you know, you talked about tactics, talked about strategy. So yes, look at your goals. Look at look at what little dominoes you're knocking over to in order to get to those big big dominoes, the big goals. But also have a look at your your product, your offer, and your pricing because you put your prices up, you're going to get a few more people saying no. But that's okay. It's called supply and demand. But let's be in charge of supply. Yeah, I mean, you also get that wonderful opportunity for people to assume that your product has a much higher value because you've priced it higher. Hundred percent. It's a bit like imagine going out buying a new pair of of jeans, and you've got a a twenty pound pair of jeans from Primark or a another kind of low cost uh, clothing brand, compared then to maybe a two hundred pound pair of Levi's, like limited edition Levi's. Like which which pair are you going to take more care of, and which pair are you going to go and do the gardening in? You're not going to do the gardening in your Levi's, but you're also going to convince yourself that there's more value in them. You're going to convince yourself of the quality of the product just because you've paid more. Because particularly if you've actually paid for it, the last thing you want to do is consider yourself a fool. So you're going to convince yourself that you made the right decision. So there's almost like a, um, a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you pay more for something, you're going to assume that it's better quality. So flip that around and be the supplier. If you can charge someone more for a product or a service, and it could be anything. I mean, even if it's just a, even if you built a SaaS tool and you're a startup, you know, doubling your price probably perceives, increases the perceived quality of it without actually making any other changes itself. hundred percent. And and also what tends, it's a, a total mindset shift in the buyer because they, because they value it more, they're more likely to take more action in order to look after it, preserve it. They're going to, they're going to lean in, they're going to implement harder, and they're going to get better results as a, you know, as a, as a natural like part of the process. Anything that's more expensive, we just care for it a little bit more. And we want to make sure that we get the result out of it. So if someone's listening to this, and they're, they're hearing your words of wisdom and going, yes, that's, that's the kind of stuff I need to do. This is making a lot of sense. Yeah, I've, I've got to do that. I've got to do this. And they're starting to 
sort of almost unwittingly realize the value of having a business coach, someone to guide them through these, I guess, logical steps, but at the same time, easy to forget steps. What are some of the, um, I guess, pitfalls to look out for or tips you can give people to help them find a coach that's going to work for them, but also probably is actually a proper coach? Is there anything you can kind of arm the listeners with that they can take in when searching for a business coach that'll hopefully weed out the players from the pretenders? So I, I have some very strong views on this. So I'm going to have to try really hard not to swear at this point. So I'm going to, I'm going to break a few things down. So um, people that annoy me in the coaching world are people who do multi-level marketing businesses and then call themselves a business coach and try and coach other businesses outside of MLM. Also, you have the corporate, you know, the people who've ex-corporate who come out of big business and then try and coach small businesses. What else is there? I think really, um, you know, there's also the franchise coaching businesses of the world as well, which there are some good ones and there are some bad ones. Fundamentally, what you want in a in a coach, um, and I think this probably goes for well, really any industry if you're looking at it, is you have to find somebody who has been in the trenches, got a few scars and war wounds, and come out of it the other side with a successful business of their own and um, that they have a proven track record. And don't be afraid to ask some very difficult questions of that coach, ask for testimonials, ask to see results, ask to dig into like their process and how they're going to coach you and things like that. If a coach is too quick to take your money, there is a big problem because you should have had to have worked a little bit, at least a little bit, in order to, for that to go onto that coach's program. I will never, if somebody's just willing to like throw money at me, I will always just say, whoa, 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 hold your horses a second. We've got to make sure that this is a good fit first and foremost. There's still a qualification and application process to go through because fundamentally, you know, all the money in the world actually doesn't help anybody log into an online portal and learn some stuff, fill out worksheets when you ask them to, like report back on their homework on a weekly basis, lean in and do the calls whenever they're on and things like that. So I, I think you've got to, you, if, you're, if you're thinking about taking on a coach, consultant, mentor, or anybody like that, I mean, depending on sort of the nature of the arrangement, you know, it's, it's going to change or the nature of your business. But do some digging first and foremost. And also speak to like, this goes without saying for any industry, speak to like two or three different coaches. Get a feel for which one you're going to have the best sort of relationship with. Make sure you've got similar sorts of core values. Because again, you don't want to like rub rub heads with somebody who is just going to stand there and say, oh, no, I'm not doing that for X, Y, and Z. There's just no point in doing that. Um, I mean, I, I, I think there's some great mentors out there. You know, you look at the likes of, I could, I could name some good ones, actually, but um, I'm a big fan of people like Gary Vaynerchuk, who, you know, he, he granted it was a uh, good, fortunate timing for him at the start of the internet age when he, when he managed to earn the, the keyword wine went for about two years. And, you know, but he's, he's been in the trenches. He helped his dad grow that business from a corner shop wine retailer to a, you know, massive international business. And now he has VaynerMedia. You've got to, you've got to respect like what people like Gary Vee have done, what the likes of Tony Robbins have done, what Jim Rohn does, you know, all of these, Frank Kern, all of these big like internet marketers, um, you know, I mean, they're all a similar sort of age now. You look at them, they're all sort of mid to late 40s, which means that they were around at the dawn of the internet ages. I always think that, I don't know if you've ever read a book called Outliers by, by Malcolm Gladwell, but he talks about like right time, right place, you know, best fit, best possible access to all the resources and those sorts of things. You know, there's a certain element of the, the stars aligning. And I'm not going to say luck here because um, I think to a certain extent, you kind of create your own luck. But equally, like if you're, if you find, 
yourself struggling a little bit, I think sometimes you've got to look up to these guys and say, what is it? Is there a little bit of what they're doing that I can take and kind of, you know, use within my business, you know, model success, even if there's just one or two elements, you don't have to do everything that they're doing. I mean, like Gary V wants to go and buy the Jets. I mean, why would he want to buy that football team for goodness sake? But but at the end of the day, like he is so passionate, so determined. He is knocking over like dominoes left, right and center to achieve his goal. And I, I, I don't think you could do anything but take your hat off to that guy. I mean, he does talk an awful lot. I've seen kind of negative things. I, you know, and, and I, you know, I, I go through ebbs and flows with, with Gary V. I had, you know, loved what he was doing. And then I felt he overstepped the mark a little bit. And interestingly, I think he was just trying to work out his next pivot into his lingo because he was very focused on Instagram. And then he kind of went into this sort of emotional marketing. And I think as he found his feet on that, he had a couple of missteps around a a few areas. And then I sort of thought, oh yeah, but he's always about tricks. He's never about any substantial marketing. And and then recently I saw a video where he, I was watching an ad that really got me was an NBA ad around a guy who was retiring. He had his jerseys and they put jerseys up on the wall and they went and found other people who came in and it was a Budweiser ad. And they gave him jerseys, but it wasn't just from other players. It was people and, you know, fans who he'd touched throughout his career. And it's a real tearjerker. And then I looked at the end, it was like VaynerMedia. And I thought, do you know what? Actually, that's a brilliant ad. And I just thought, you know, in, in, in years gone by, that would have been, you know, Asachi and Saatchi, and it would have been this big collaborative piece. And now you see someone like Gary V with VaynerMedia producing that. And you just think, yeah, he's getting it right. And so you've got to, you've got to give the guy credit. You know, he talks a lot and you might think it's superficial. And then you watch that new Budweiser ad and you just think, yeah, that's good. He's on the money. He knows what he's talking about as well. So yeah, a bit of a hat tip to him there. I think what you've touched upon there is kind of the, it's, it comes back to that heartfelt marketing where you, you kind of create a really close connection with somebody on a one-to-one basis. And you're not just like marketing to thousands of people saying, buy my shit. It's actually like a really, you know, what, what he's done there is create, I don't know if you've ever seen like the Marks and Spencer adverts or the John Lewis adverts around Christmas here, when it was, you're over here in the UK. I, I did. I, I still, I still look them up. I still get excited about the John Lewis Christmas ads, but it's, it's so bad when you leave Britain. So just for, for context, most of the people listening here are in Australia. So in the UK, the Christmas ads are like the Super Bowl ads in America. Every single retail in Britain hangs their hat on the ad campaign they produce. And the big brands like John Lewis, Debenhams, Marks and Spencer produce these unbelievable, even like Boots, the pharmacy produce unbelievable Christmas ads. And John Lewis are the winners. Like generally speaking, they produce the most tear jerking ads, don't they? John Lewis have got that deeply personal connection and it's never about the product. It's never really about, you know, it's about this whole process of storytelling and connecting with the audience. I mean, they're, they're a good business through and through because they do some fantastic things like no quibble money back. In fact, you could probably take any, like pick up any old piece of junk, take it into John Lewis and they'll give you some cash back for it. Because they're, they're so, the whole thing around like loyalty and the customer is like the, the center of their universe. They have like a total no quibble guarantee. There's no timescales on it. It's just like, it's, you know, for the greater good, basically. So I totally believe in it. And I think, I think the more, like Gary Vee with that advert, I think the more people can find ways of connecting with their audience. So I'm going to do an unblatant plug here. But when I wrote Take Your Shot, one of the, the kindest comments that people have written back, because it, it's, I wrote it as a narrative, a story about one of my early coaching clients. And everybody says, I read the first chapter and take your shot. And I know that's me. Because it goes through this process of like Russ waking up in the morning and it's like the dread of like going to work, doing, you know, and that emotional state that we get ourselves into when we're stuck. And then gradually through the story, it kind of pulls you out of that. But every comment I get is like, yeah, it feels like you were talking to me in that first page of the book. 
And if, and if someone wants to read that book, where's the best place to find Take Your Shot? Amazon, I guess. So it's it's on Amazon, yeah, paperback. Um, if you smile sweetly at me, then I'll even pop a copy in the post. Like it's going to get expensive if I'm shipping them all over to um, to Australia. But we'll, maybe what we'll do is we'll... Um, I tell you what, if... if um, I don't know if you're up for this, um, Jara, but if people... Maybe the first 10 people to share this episode of the podcast on social media, so Facebook or Twitter, and tag one or both of us in, um, I will send them a copy of Take Your Shot as a little gift. All right, done. I'll put that in the post where we get there. Right. This is marketing. This is marketing tactics, not strategies, but it's marketing tactics. And, and you know, and I, I wanted to ask about that. I mean, look, you know, you've written a book and, and I often think to myself, books are content, content marketing. You know, what was the major driver behind your book? Was it part of your content marketing strategy or, or was, it a, was there a higher purpose that you sort of lifted yourself up to and said, I want to do this book for a particular reason or is it both? A bit of both, actually. So the, the first book I wrote was very much kind of to put me up onto that pedestal. It was that authority kind of piece, but it was um, closely linked to my old business. So it's called Online Business Startup. Still relevant. There are bits of it which are starting to date because it's four or five years old, but that was that started to kind of give me the credibility and the profile and things like that. Um, there's actually another another author friend of mine, Dan Priestley, who's written four amazing books, but in particular, he wrote a book called Entrepreneur Revolution. And that started me on my entrepreneurial journey. And I had a chat with Dan and it's like, you've got to write a book, Rob. You've got this great story to tell. So, But the second book, though, because um, the first book's actually, I did it through a publisher and it's a bit expensive, uh, if I'm honest, for me to kind of buy and give away and tile the ceilings and the walls with it. So Take Your Shot was actually a bit more of a commercial decision. Specifically, I wanted to write a narrative. Like, I love storytelling. So I wanted to write a book which connected with people and told a story. It, again, it was about writing a book that aligned with my coaching practice, which I'd now set up. But also because I give so m many copies of the book away, um, I, I shouldn't say that because everybody's going to be clamoring, like asking me for a free copy of the book now. But fun fundamentally, it's about like a book in somebody's mind. It's about perceived value. So somebody might value a book at, say, I don't know, 10 or 15 bucks or something like that. But the reality is it costs me less than two bucks to get them printed. So it's very little cost to me, but I know the impact the book can have. Like fundamentally, I know my coaching program's great, but I can't help all of the business owners in the world yet. I can distribute my book all around the world and help a ton more people than I could have done if I didn't have a book. And that gets back to that idea around, you know, putting your best foot forward, your best content, your best advice out there. And if, if that's your, one of your major drivers, and I think it is for me and it's for a lot of business owners, is to, to make a better world, then putting it into a book that the knowledge share is asymmetric, then, you know, it makes a lot of sense. I don't think I've got the fortitude to write a book. I don't think my written word is quite there to actually do that. But, um, you know, maybe maybe short form posts or podcasts is the closest I'll ever get. I'll, I'll challenge you on that, Jared, because I think you're being selfish by not, not, not putting your ideas out into the world in the form of a book. I think everybody has a book in them. And if you ever go out there and say, I need, I, I've been thinking about writing a book, just get on and do it. Because otherwise, I just think you're being selfish. I think everybody has an idea that they can share with the world to make it a better place. So, and probably I bet in all of the interviews that you've done and blog articles and things like that, you've probably easily done 20, 30,000 words plus. So you could just cheat a little bit and kind of combine them together, maybe edit it a little bit and you've got a book there. Well, I've got somebody coming on in a couple of episodes time, I think. And her advice is all around how you write your own book. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to combine your advice there, speak to her. And if I can be entirely convinced, who knows what crazy things I might decide to do. So um, I'm not going to completely ruin. I'm going to do that other interview and I'm going to see if I can convince myself to write a book. Um, it's going to have to be a short book though. I'm going to take your advice. It needs to be able to be read on a flight. So a last bit of advice for people, 
if you can think about a scenario where you're in a cafe or maybe cafe in Australia, maybe a pub in Britain, and you're meeting a startup founder and, and you want to leave them with that one bit of business advice, you know, they're very, they're probably early on in their startup. What's the, the one bit of advice if you can, because, you know, no doubt you've spoken for half an hour and give them a hundred different things to think about, but what's the one thing you want to leave them with so that, you, you know, they've got a better chance of succeeding with their business? I'm going to give two things. I hope that's okay. So the first one's a bit of a cheat because it's kind of like go and get yourself a coach or a mentor, somebody who's kind of been there and is where you see yourself in five or 10 years time. It goes without saying it's a commitment, but it'll speed up the process no end. The other thing as well, you know, my program is all about being fearless in business. So it's fearing those things in business ever so slightly less. And what I mean by that is if somebody says, put your price up, you say, oh, no, 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 I couldn't possibly do that because, you know, people might say no. It's kind of like you've got to push yourself outside the comfort zone. You've got to stretch yourself a little bit in order to create growth. If you just stay where you are, you don't just, you never just stay where you are because other people overtake you. In fact, it's a backward step. So be prepared to kind of just fear those things in business slightly less. If something kind of makes you shudder a little bit, you should probably be doing it. That's really good advice. It's kind of, if you're not, if you if there's no fear, then you're probably not achieving anything of substance or anything substantial because it's probably been done by everybody before and it's the safe road. So great advice. So if people would like to connect with you and chat to you more about your ideas or your programs or just connect with you in some way on social media, what are the best channels and paths to find you online? I definitely obviously recommend going going and grabbing hold of a copy of Take Your Shot because it kind of just, it, it's it's this the start of a journey basically for you. But um, so my website's robinwaite.com. That's weight with an E on the end of it. Uh, all of my social media handles are Robin M for Mark Waite. So that's on Instagram, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn. And yeah, I'm always happy, open to answer anybody's questions like business related stuff. Um, business is my passion. So lean in and we can hopefully get you started on that journey of growing your business. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. And to anyone who's listened to this far, go and find uh, the LinkedIn post where we'll release the episode and you know, request the book and we'll, we'll collect details and connect with you. And we'll, we'll try to organize that little promo between Robin and myself. And we'll, we'll get some books out to people uh, in Australia who listen to this and, and follow on social media. Robin, thank you so much. It's been great. It's been probably the longest episode. I always try to hit half an hour, but we could have gone for a whole lot longer. So thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And it's great to have a, another person from Britain on the show with me. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I shall probably have to repay the favor and get you onto my podcast at some point as well in the future, Gerard. So, And that's the Fearless Business Podcast for people who want to look it up and, and, and hear more of your um, dulcet tones and wise words. <laughs> dulcet tones, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> great. Thank you so much. That's a pleasure. No trouble at all. 